0: Sunday, May 1st, 2022. Welcome to the 12th episode in this series from Midas Touch and 5-Minute News called The Weekend Show. You can download the show as audio in addition to my daily 5-Minute News podcast, which is a short daily roundup of the news that you can listen to every morning when you have your morning coffee. Get it at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Today, joining me is a winning trial attorney, business consultant, and co-anchor and founder of the Legal AF podcast, Michael Popok. Michael, hello! Thank you for joining me. We're we're cross-pollinating. This is a bit like when Spider-Man shows up in a uh, another Marvel movie, and everyone's uh, like, "Wow!" Uh,
1: I love it. It's, or 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 when DC Comics and Marvel crossover, which almost never right. happens. No, I was I was thrilled that. We talked about me coming on the show, I've been a big fan of yours and and this intersection of law and politics that you cover uh, is really, as you know, really important to what we do
0: and I'm glad that we we're able to talk to your audience about it. Well, thank you. And for me, you know, it's such an education because I am from England, obviously, but I, I've been living in LA for nearly uh, over five years, in America for five years. And I've been coming here for, for years and I really thought I knew this country. and the proof is that you really have to live somewhere in order to kind of get into the fabric of the culture. And um, I would just say very quickly, before we start talking about our subjects today, that um, America is so litigious. And this is something I hadn't really realized until I lived here. Because in England, we still have a thing called shame. And so it's not really (laughs) necessary to kind of sue people all the time. The, The and we don't have like the state suing the federal government which would be councils suing the central government in England you know they never would never sue each other you know they might say something a little bit horrible about them in the press and that and there's enough shame for people to change and this is something i've really learned here and 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 you'll tell me from a legal perspective it's like everyone i meet is a lawyer you know you meet somebody <laughs> who's got this job or that job but you know they trained as a lawyer and it seems that You know, to be um, well-versed in in American law is essential to have, you know, to plow your way through this this life here. Why is America so litigious? Is it because, you know, law does not stack up in the cell that, you know, law is not as, um, I would say well-written, but that's unfair. You know, the British legal system and the justice system is famous across the world, but the American system isn't. Why is that?
1: Yeah, I think it's because we, you might have heard this, Anthony, in your own teaching when you were a small schoolboy abroad. We're rebellious people. I think that we were literally formed from a rebellion. And I mean that in a good way, not in a Jan 6 insurrectionist attack the Capitol and stop the peaceful transfer of power way. I mean, um, even the way our constitution is drafted, the, the fabric of it, which is what we talk about constantly, because the actual writing is limited. The Constitution itself takes up a small pamphlet if you were to publish it. It is the case law, it is the law of precedent that's established by our US Supreme Court. It is the uniqueness of our state and federal system, which starts from really really the beginning of America and the colonies and how they agreed to band together into eventually the 13 states and what that relationship would be between the state and federal government. Now, we're seeing it writ large now by the right, right wing who have tried to take advantage of all of the interstitial spaces that exists between our constitution, between the state and the federal and the federal government, to their advantage. But to answer the question you started with, as a trial lawyer, we are litigious um, because if we don't stand up for our rights, whether it be against. Um, a company that harms a consumer or another a company that harms its employee or somebody who's sexually assaulted or discriminated against or somebody who's violating first amendment rights. And I have a feeling we're going to talk a lot about that today on your podcast. If we don't have an avenue, a ticket into the courthouse, then we've lost what makes America so unique and a shining example, I think in the right way of democracy around the world.
0: I have one follow up question to this before we go into our subjects for today and that is when did the the justice system in america become politicized or was it always politicized because you know in the uk we have the high court and the supreme court neither of which are politicized we 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 don't know other than politicians themselves we don't know which side of the fence anybody might sit on who works in in law fundamentally you know the reason it's the justice system is because it is separate from politics when did politics creep into American law?
1: I think it's always been there. You know, I'll give you an example, then I'll work backwards. Um, a judge recently in Florida, a federal judge, handling a case involving Trump. What else? In which Trump tried to disqualify him because that federal judge was appointed by a politician, a president, President Clinton. 20 years ago said, aha, you can't you can't impartially rule against me in this case because you're beholden to Clinton from 25 years ago. And the judge who I know, Judge Middlebrooks, said eloquently, and I'll paraphrase, judges, federal judges especially, are above partisan politics. We owe that as part of our oath of office. And that is true, but let's look at the reality. At the state court level, most judges around the United States are elected, are elected judges. Many of them, most of them are are in non, I'm sorry, are in partisan races. They run as Democrats or Republicans. Some of the states have said, do it nonpartisan, but frankly, all the voters know who's the Republican and who's the Democrat, even in the nonpartisan race. If there's an opening on a state court uh, bench, it's appointed by the sitting governor of that state who is the head politician for that party in that state. At the federal level, the same thing. The states, the uh, federal senators um, nominate, if you will, the judge gives the list to the president of their party. The president and the Senate confirm. It's all suffused with politics. But what, but what you're right about, right on point about, is what's happened over the last fifteen or twenty years with the partisanship that started. If you really wanted to go back in time to the politics of it, started with Lee Atwater, started with Karl Rove because the Republican Party is not generally able to win at a national level because they don't have the numbers unless they have wedge politics that they can play. Gays in the military, anti-LGBTQ, anti-abortion. These are the hot buttons they have to play to get more people to go to the polls for them because they can't naturally win large national elections. So they've taken that and they've moved it on through the Federalist Society which is a, an organization here in the States, which got founded about the time I was in law school in the early 90s, to bring co- what they call conservative analysis to and a conservative originalist approach to the, to the Constitution and get judges who adhere to that onto the bench. That is the greatest trick, not of the devil, but of Mitch McConnell, which is to get all of the Federalist judges over the last 20 to 25 years at every level of the federal judiciary, all the way up to the US Supreme Court. And that's where the politicization, the it's because the right wing has focused more so than even the Democrats on getting like-minded judges in place. Now they're moving on to school boards and we're gonna talk about that later.
0: We are, and unfortunately it's, it's really, come to a head now because of course Trump was able to nominate three judges um, and in that process you know Amy Coney Barrett never tried a case before she's effectively an academic Um, and then uh, we know about Brett Kavanaugh he likes beer but we're also now starting to hear about Clarence Thomas being uh, influenced by his wife who is a far-right kind of extremist activist so What hope is that By by the way, Anthony,
1: that's putting it nicely. She she subscribes, Jenny Thomas subscribes publicly to QAnon-based theories and always refers obliquely in emails and texts that have now come out through the Jan 6 committee to Mark Meadows and others. She refers to, my friend, my friend will be really happy about this. And that's code. That has already been translated. That is code for
0: her husband, who is a sitting member of the United States Supreme Court. But what hope is there for people who seek justice? I mean, we have a thing in in Europe whereby if you don't get uh, the outcome that you're hoping for in the Supreme Court, you go to the European Court of Human Rights. And that court invariably, you know, because it has such a wide range of justices, you know from all of europe that it tends to kind of see see the um see the light but what hope is there for people who are hoping to be heard it's not always individuals often organizations but they get to that supreme court and there's no just no point i mean this is how we feel about trump not being prosecuted fundamentally if it ends up in the supreme court of course his buddies his henchmen are going to let him off the hook
1: yeah i i, I i'd like to blow sunshine when it comes to democracy and progressive positions, but, but it is a dire period in our history. I've gone through it before. You know, at my age, having graduated from law school in the early 90s, I've seen the court change over time, but the, pro- the difference back to the politicization of, ju- of the judiciary and how sad it is. When I was in law school, I may not have been of the party of Sandra Day O'Connor, of, of Rehnquist, of the others, but I trusted that at the end that they would have a political analysis and I may not always agree with them, but I respected them as jurists. I can't say that anymore because Amy Coney Barrett, Alito, Thomas, I could tell you what they're going to say and what they're gonna write before they're even going to write it. And if that's the case, then where is the independence of the judiciary where is fair mindedness if i can tell you exactly where alito and thomas are going to be even even the late antonine scalia i may not have agreed with but he was brilliant and his writing was and his analysis which i may not have agreed with at least had a uh, some integrity in in its in its re- in its reasoning that is missing now read gorsuch read Kavanaugh, doctrine When I was a kid in law school, precedent rarely changed except for major developments in the law or in society. And you could count on that. If I learned it in 91, it was still there in 2000 and beyond. Now, Precedent lasts two years, three years, five years. Let's take that case up again. Let's talk about the baker who doesn't want to bake for a gay couple. Let's talk about the web designer who does we already We already have a precedent from five or eight years ago. Why are you taking that up other than cravenly because you now have the numbers to make a change in the law? Is that what the law is? You have the numbers so you can force it down everybody's throat? I thought the law was something greater than that.
0: It's very interesting and we'll we'll get into the weeds of this a little bit today. Um We're going to talk about Ron DeSantis vowing additional legislative action to dissolve Disney's self-governing district in just a little while. There's all sorts of things going off in Florida right now. And uh, it just seems so ironic that, you know, Disney is just the antithesis of Ron DeSantis. Interestingly, I've never seen Mickey Mickey Mouse and Ron in the same place at the same time. So I'm beginning to think maybe there's a story there as well. He
1: has more. I think DeSantis has more than three fingers, but I'm not sure. Well, th-
0: th- yeah, jury's out. Um, we're also going to look at this report out of Minneapolis, which is very tragic in so many ways, but also not as a not a not a surprise at all. This is the uh, state report that details racial bias in the Minneapolis Police Department. Um, and uh, but first, though, I want to look to Elon Musk, the uh, South African who I think a lot of people think is an American. I mean, he is an American. He has citizenship now, but he left South Africa. I, I think they was... thought
1: that until he appeared on Saturday Night Live, and then they realized. <laughs> (laughs) how a
0: incredibly weird he is and b that he has some sort of accent yeah he has he has a very subtle accent he i think he left south africa when he was 22 or something like that he was he was avoiding national service Mm -hmm. and uh, he went to canada first then came to the us then got his citizenship but uh it was announced on friday that he sold uh 8.5 billion dollars worth of uh, tesla shares Uh, I presume so that he can afford to buy Twitter, which he's agreed to do for 44 million, a billion dollars. You could do a lot with 44 billion dollars buying a social network organization. I don't know if it's the right thing, but he is the richest man in the world. And so there's been a lot of questions asked as to whether or not the richest man in the world should own really one of the few town squares that America has, you know, this virtual town square where you know, it's where politicians communicate their message. It's where the people talk back. Um, and it's where, you know, It's a, I've been on Twitter for, I don't know, maybe it's 12, 13 years now. I was reluctant. You know, I was forced on there by a radio station that I used to work for. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I'm kind of addicted. But I, I tend not to engage with people on Twitter because I'm very conscious about um, inciting, you know, something that really, you know, can easily and quickly get out of hand. Well, with that in mind, Elon Musk did tweet this morning, um, or on Friday morning, I should say. Uh, and let me let me just quote what he what he tweeted. He hasn't yet signed the deal, so he's not quite the owner just yet. But he said, "The far left hates everyone themselves included," and then he followed that up with, "But I'm no fan of the far right either. Let's have less hate." and more love. Now, this is just so weird, isn't it? It's like this for a guy who is saying that he wants to, you know, somehow deal with the problems that Twitter has, which is that it does have extreme views, and it needs to moderate. It's almost like he is inciting hate speech just with these two tweets on Friday. Well,
1: well, that's not even his that's not even his um, only hate speech directed at either the left or the right, or even Twitter itself and Twitter employees. You may have reported on this already. If not, I'll talk about it now. Twitter has, as a covenant, as a condition in the agreement with him, that especially during this kind of look period where he can still walk away and only suffer a $1 billion penalty, which sounds like a lot of money, but actually is, is, uh, is not. And he would walk away with that. That's like his allowance or pocket change for the week. Um, so he gave himself an out. But he, is, he has an obligation, a rep and a warranty, a, representative, a representation and a warranty, not to criticize Twitter, or any of its employees during this period. But that's all he's done on Twitter. He he, he came after and attacked the general counsel of Twitter, who was reported was crying at a meeting about Elon Musk taking over. And he went after her as some sort of snowflake, left-wing person. And you know, so the board, by the way, not only Elon has a, a way to get out of this deal, the board has a way to get out of it. I know that Jack Dorsey wants his $1 billion parachute on the way out. But the board could walk away from this too, and Elon may be. One theory is, as an evil genius, he may be looking for an exit strategy by attacking Twitter and making them walk away from the deal, because and then he would then he wouldn't have to pay the billion dollars, and and so on and
0: so on. But he's done this no, before, though, hasn't he? Do you remember when he said time. he was going to take Tesla public, and then the, the 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 shares just just went crazy. Well, this or, this.
1: This one backfired exactly. This one backfired on yeah. him. First of all, that when he tweeted another marijuana reference pipe dream, that because whatever whenever he makes an offer to a public company, he always has some four twenty dollar amount on it, which is the totemic marijuana messaging that people yeah. talk about uh, April 20th. So this was fifty four twenty as a bid yeah. price. When he did it for Tesla back in 20, uh, 2018, he got severely sanctioned by the SEC. He is under a consent decree where everything that he tweets about Tesla has to go through first the SEC for approval before he can tweet it. Now he tried to get out from under that this week in court. And the judge says, no, I'm not letting you out from under your consent decree. Because the the SEC was rightly afraid of him manipulating the market uh, and crushing small investors, not the Elon Musks of the world, the you and me's of the world, the, the mom and pops of the world are getting crushed with the oscillating up and down share price. Now, the market, having learned its lesson in 2018, is hammering him in two ways. One, it didn't believe the original Twitter offer. And while he was up at 5420, the stock price stayed at around 50 because the market was like yeah I don't think this deal is going to happen. Then when the board approved it, the stock price started to inch up towards the 5420. But then they started hammering Tesla stock because they were basically telling him, "A, we don't believe you." Because you, you know, fool us once, fool us twice. Secondly, why don't you just focus on making cars and going to the and going to Mars? We don't want you buying a social media property in the middle of streaming services and social media being hammered in the marketplace in terms of their stock prices. Why are you doing this? Focus on your core business. And the stock price starts getting hammered, which means he's got to come out of pocket more. He's got to sell more shares, more market depression. Now look, Anthony, all this doesn't matter because he has so much money. You know, he just got a $23 billion dividend or, or bonus because he raised the stock price so much over the last three or four years. So he, he can laugh in the face of all of these these stock price uh, movements. But you and I can't, and the average investor can't. Um, and, th- and that's what gets lost
0: on it. Let's talk a, a little bit about free speech versus hate speech, because this is something that I look at from a slightly different perspective. And I'm sure you're aware, but in England, we have hate speech law. Uh, and you're not actually allowed to, you know, what, what you consider First Amendment rights here. It's very different where I come from, which is a democratic country. I worked as a talk show host on the radio for, for many, many years, and I never felt that I was prevented from saying what I wanted to say, even though the radio station was regulated by the government. I don't think people understand that, you know, regulation, it's not total. It's not a kind of totalitarian concept there can be elements of light regulation in place, rules in place, that enable us to still communicate and volley and be open with our views. Let me just read you uh, a little bit about the Human Rights Act 1998. It's Article 10. This is out of Europe and the UK. Everyone has the right to freedom of expression, but the law states that this freedom may be subject to formalities, conditions, restrictions or penalties that are prescribed by law and are necessary in a democratic society. Section 127 of the Communications Act 2003 makes it illegal to send a message via a public electronic communications network, i.e. Twitter, that is considered grossly offensive or of an indecent, obscene, or menacing character. Meaning that if you say something on Twitter that is offensive or aggressive, or maybe it could be connected to terrorism or to anti-LGBTQ+. and you sp- and you post it in your name, and the person that you are posting it against or an individual finds it offensive, they can call the police and the police will come and knock on your door. and they will threaten you to take it down or you will be arrested. And now- Twitter too, And the Twitter, the provider also. I don't think the platform. No, I don't think mm-hmm. the platform. I think it's all about individuals. And so this is where I've come from. And so I've come to a place where people are screaming First Amendment all the time. And yet the aggression, the the malice, the the vile nature of some people, and invariably it's partisan, isn't it? You know, it's, it's, it's far right uh, Trump people, the MAGA brigade versus the, the the lefty snowflakes. That's really where people butt heads. So is, you know, will American law ever see the difference between free speech and hate, or, and hate speech or is the First Amendment here to stay? Well, th- let me let me answer it this way by on the
1: definition that you just gave for what would be illegal, literally illegal under British law, under law of, 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 uh, of England and Wales, 15 percent of America would be in jail. <laughs> Based on that, uh, they would just yeah. be really, I mean, the police would be overwhelmed. You think they're overwhelmed with Jan 6? They'd be overwhelmed with what gets posted uh, right. every day uh, in chat in chat rooms and uh, uh, social commentary on Twitter and all of that. You, you started this, this segment uh, tonight or today talking about Twitter has become the town or public square. And I want to talk about that through the First Amendment because it technically is not. Twitter is a private company. It's one that's a, that could, it's a public company, it's publicly traded, but it is a private company as, as, as compared to the government. The internet in the United States is considered to be the town square or the public square. That can't, that has, there's First Amendment implications related to that. But when it comes to the Twitters and the Facebooks, the metas of the world, they are not, they are a private company. And they, by Supreme Court precedent, and we just talked about what could happen to Supreme Court precedent, but by current Supreme Court precedent, they, and, and statute, which is the uh, Section 230 of the Communications Act, Communications Decency Act, they are not liable for what is posted there. They have complete immunity, and they under the Good Samaritan provision of Section 230, which has been, which has been declared to be constitutional, uh, which is two thir- Section 230C.2, if... They, the Twitters of the world, use content rules to take down or ban hateful, violent, racist, lewd, or otherwise objectionable, in their good faith estimate, otherwise objectionable speech, they are not going to be liable. In other words, they are allowed to curate and manage and monitor their um, platform without fear of liability. And then we go one step further because in in your part of the woods or where you came from, the European Union has the Digital Services Act, which requires the Twitters of the world to police their platform, or they'll be subjected to a major, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of fines. So you have that. The first here's the, the irony,
0: isn't it? Well, uh, America yeah. is so litigious, <laughs> and England is is not, which we said at the beginning. And you yet, pick on England fines, has, though, right, right, and yet. In, in, in the UK and Europe, you have way more rules about making sure that this never needs to get to court.
1: I, I'll tell you what the big difference is. Our, in our country, to, between our cousins here, in our country, we let the private citizen do a lot of the regulating through litigation. Although there are muscular organizations like the Securities and Exchange Commission, the Department of Justice. Your country uses a lot of government agencies to investigate and find and, and you do a lot of fining over there. Now, back to First Amendment and the Twitter platform. So there is no First Amendment right to have access to Twitter. There's no First Amendment right if that's violated. If Twitter decides that they don't like you and they wanna de-platform you and your account because they don't like your content. People have tried and failed to say there's a First Amendment right to that. On the opposite side, Twitter has a First Amendment right that can be violated. If the government forces them to put up content that is violative of their community standards under Section 230 and otherwise, that violates Twitter's First Amendment rights. So when we talk about First Amendment and social media platforms, we've got it ass backwards. It's not that the people have a First Amendment right that Twitter is violating, it's Twitter has a First Amendment right not to be legislated about who and what content ends up on its platform. So, so, and on the First Amendment, and we're gonna talk about it a little bit later about Disney, Mm -hmm. on the First Amendment, it's against government, state, local, or federal. Government interference or abridgment of the right to free speech. Not your neighbors, not Twitter, the government. The government can't do things that suppress First Amendment speech, either because they don't like the content or they don't like the viewpoint. Not, Not the social media platforms. And that's the big thing. And the thing that Musk misses in his whole, it's a public square. It is not a public square. He's already off on the wrong foot on purpose. He also has to acknowledge, and he doesn't want to because of his entanglements in his business dealings in Tesla, that Saudi Arabia, which owns 5% of Tesla, is not a free society. It is not someone that, it, that it's not a, a government that, that supports First Amendment expression at all. That hundreds of millions of Twitter followers are, are in countries of totalitarian or dictatorship rule even though they're using Twitter as much as they can, dodging the police and the security forces of their own country at great risk to themselves. He ignores all that because he sits in an ivory tower built with his billions of Tesla dollars and says, you know, like some weird evil genius in a movie, in a, in a Bond movie, and, and says, oh, the whole world, everything should be free. Snowflakes and right wings should it's all get together. It's easy to say that
0: everything should be free if you're the richest man in the world. <laughs> exactly, but, but, the irony. Right, the, the irony. but. <laughs> You know, the whole of the West ignores Saudi Arabia's human rights track record. You know, America trades with Saudi Arabia. Uh, you know, they, they just sold $600 million worth of, of equipment. Our, our presidents uh, hold
1: hands with the Saudi sheikhs, literally.
0: That's that's right. And it's the same with the UK, you know, selling stuff. We The biggest exports from the UK are arms invariably to Saudi Arabia. And a reminder of course that you know 17 of the 911 bombers were Saudi nationals and yet they went after Iraq and then Afghanistan. I mean it's like poof, right yeah. So you know we
1: just changed just on, on Anthony on that, you know we just changed yeah. the law now that now the Democrats have control of Congress, we just changed the law to allow the Saudi government to be sued by the victims of 9-11 directly, oh, right. and then have the assets of the Saudi government be at risk uh, when the judgments are enforced. And that, that took how many administrations? Even Obama didn't do it. But Biden yeah. and his administration did support it. And that change has happened.
0: Let's talk about the uh, elephant in the room. Uh, the the orange elephant uh, and that is Donald Trump returning to the Twitter platform. Now he was banned for life by by Twitter. Now why why are his supporters and the the right wing so excited that Elon Musk is buying Twitter? They obviously see that this could mean that Trump could return. Uh, Truth Social, as we know, Trump's own social media organization. It, well, it's not really an organization, isn't it? It's, it's, it's not organized. It's not really working. Uh, and he, I think, was only able to post his first tweet on it on Friday, uh, where he said something like "I am back" and then wrote "Kaveffi," which is was his yeah. like famous uh, typo. Twitter typo. Yeah. But fundamentally, with a change of ownership. Could Trump get unbanned? I mean, he was banned because he incited an insurrection, which tried to overturn the results of the election. I mean, that's kind of a significant reason to be banned in the first place, (laughs) right? That probably Um,
1: violated the terms of service of the platform.
0: Right. So my question is, really, what are the chances of Trump returning? But in addition to that, it's like, what is it about the, 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 the right wing and the far right who are super excited about Elon Musk? Because, you know, M- Musk is, we don't really know where he sits. He's donated to the Republican Party over the years. He's also donated to the, to the Democrats as well. So what, what is this connection between um, Musk and the, and the, and the right? And, and Trump and Musk, by, yeah. by extension.
1: I, I think there's a, there was a good line a number of years ago in the candidate that ran against DeSantis, and I'll use it here. That candidate in running against DeSantis said, it's not that DeSantis is racist, it's that the racists think that DeSantis is racist. Right. And, and the same thing here with Trump, eat Musk, and Twitter. I don't know why they're so excited, but they are very excited by Musk taking it over. And so the the racist and the right wing think they see a a commonality with Musk, a union with Musk. The Saudis are, even though they originally were not excited by the deal because they wanted the dollar to go up from 54.20 to something higher, when that was clear it was not gonna happen, they've now said "We're, we're very supportive of the deal because they're also supportive of Tesla in Saudi Arabia and there's financial relationships there. Uh, Turkey is super excited about it. All these countries that do not put any value, no, the opposite. They suppress First Amendment speech and free speech of their people are super excited about Musk taking over Twitter. So to paraphrase, I'm not saying that Musk is against freedom of expression, but the people who are against freedom of expression seem to be very
0: happy about his takeover. And it's very interesting, isn't it? Because the lines are so blurred. And... Musk knows this, doesn't he? He He's playing a oh, yeah. game. He knows that people have this, uh, this idea. They've conjured up this idea that Trump, uh, that Musk's ownership means, you know, the return of, the, of, of this level of expression, which is basically racism, isn't it? I mean, that's what we're talking about here. You know, it's being free to be racist. When Trump was president, it gave people license to be racist. It, and I often say, you know, when Derek Chauvin had his knee on the neck of George Floyd, in my opinion, he knew he was going to get away with it because Trump was the president. Mm-hmm. And 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 that's why, you know, Trump's um, prejudice kind of bled down into society. And so it's not just Musk that knows what's happening here and is playing this game, but Trump knows this as well. He knows he's probably never going back to Twitter. He knows his ban is for life and life means life. So he's also... Manipulating his followers by saying, "You know, I'm back," and Kaveffi, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, I yeah, and, and on Trump, um, I don't think he gets put back on the platform um, because of because of the charges against him, but he has been largely silenced and muted by being off of Twitter. I mean, he's left withholding these ridiculous, bad production value press conferences on the back porch of Mar-a-Lago you know with these grainy videos from his followers who then posted it somehow to Twitter that's what he's or as i as i said once on my own podcast he's like typing on some sort of typewriter and handing the paper off to some you know boy boy take this down the hallway and get it published right. i mean he he can't do the immediacy of of tweeting which which he loved and exploited to no end and i don't think that's coming back i looked at that truth social platform i mean i don't that is not you know, we talked about public square. That will never be the public square. That is going to be a dark, dark web hole for people that
0: support him. And the other thing well, I you, don't because you is, need somebody to disagree yeah. in order to right. have uh, something. And if there's right. no one there to disagree with you, then you're just shouting into how, a void. How about this
1: latest QAnon theory? Joe Biden is dead, and he's being portrayed by three actors, including I'm not making this up. Jim Carrey is playing the real Joe Biden. Th- I mean, this is what is out there in the hinterland, Anthony, beyond your
0: podcast and mine uh, yeah. of thinking. Now, but it's also- not just from it's not just from like extreme crazies. This stuff is being said by people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who is a congresswoman. You know, this is this is being said within the Capitol building itself. The Lauren Boberts of this world, you know, mm-hmm. they subscribe to this thinking, and so the problem is when it's said by somebody who is a, an elected representative who who is official then it, it takes on a whole new level of truth and that's why twitter was so dangerous in the hands of trump because somehow he was the president
1: yeah you're not supposed to tweet foreign policy with your finger on the nuclear button in in 120 characters or less in the middle of the night when you have a wild hair that's not supposed to be you know and, and he thought that was Trump thought that was his strength his uh, unpredictability. This is what kept Putin out of Ukraine. This is what kept China up at night or North Korea. They don't know what I'm gonna do. He thought he was like the Mel Gibson, and lethal weapon, you know, oh, I'm crazy, I'm a wild card. Nobody knows what I'm gonna do. That's not diplomacy. That's not proper national security policy. That's off the seat of your pants by some middling real estate developer in New York, you know, who, who constantly confuses celebrity with statesmanship
0: and befriending dictators. You know, the only people he, he really them. saw eye to eye with were the the Putins and the Kim Jong-uns and the Erdogan's. The, you know, these are the people that he connected with. Uh, and you know, the, and Bolsonaro as well who, you know, mm-hmm. has basically formed his the, you know, the Trump of Trump Brazil. Trump did Bolsonaro right. did about 2 mm-hmm. weeks later um including get covid. So, you know, it's not all bad. <laughs> but I but and, I, and, I and, yeah. I was going to
1: say you, you. I was just going to say, and you would have seen it if uh, Le Pen had won against, which well, she wasn't going to. Right. But if she had won against, um, uh, you know, the the French president, sir, uh, th- that would be that would be
0: a terrible result because she's Trump in a in a pantsuit. Let's um, move to Minneapolis now with our conversation. This is after an extensive state investigation launched after the police killing of George Floyd in 2020 found that the Minneapolis Police Department has engaged in a pattern of race discrimination for at least the past decade. I guess they could have gone back multiple decades, but they just didn't have the time in order to create this uh, which is a very detailed 72-page report. Um, the department said on Wednesday this week that it will negotiate a court-enforceable agreement called a dissent decree with the city of Minneapolis to address the long list of problems identified in the report. Um, you've read the report. I've skimmed through it, and I am completely I mean, I, I knew it was bad, but I mean, this is insane. You know, it's saying that there are disparities in how officers use force, stop, search, arrest and cite people of colour, particularly black people, compared to white people in similar circumstances. Um, but also the social media element, the fact that, that it turns out police officers have been literally hunting black people on social media and black organisations in order to entrap them and, and, and arrest them. Which they were never doing for white people. There was not even any criminality involved in, in their search. They were just looking, like lynching. They were just looking for people to lynch. So, did this report come as a surprise to you? The short answer to that is no. And
1: and this report's going to be a it's a it's going to be a two barrel report. Uh, this is the report by the Minneapolis, or the, I'm sorry, the Minnesota. Uh, Human Rights Commission, which started its investigation the day after George Floyd was murdered by four police officers. At the same time that the Department of Justice with Merrick Garland in its Civil Rights Division announced almost an identical one, mm-hmm. except focused on whether the pattern and practice of both min- Minneapolis and the, uh, the city and the police department showed a violation of First Amendment rights of protesters, 14th Amendment rights of equal protection, and Fourth Amendment rights against searches and seizures. So the the federal analysis started literally on the same day as the mini Minnesota one. Minnesota has come out of the box first after one full year of detailed analytics to, to find, and this is their finding, it's one line, probable cause that the city of Minneapolis and its police department have engaged in racial discrimination in their policing for the period of time that you just that you just described. And then they work back in 72 pages of detailed statistical analysis. I mean Anthony, they looked at 800 hours of body cam video from, from police interactions with the public, mainly black, brown, and indigenous people. They looked at hundreds of hours of training. They looked at thousands and thousands and tens of thousands of pages of documentation and did a statistical analysis. And the numbers are, I mean, I eye popping and disheartening wouldn't even capture it. I don't know if you caught this in your review, Anthony. Let's just put it this way. 14 people died because of excessive force in that time period in Minneapolis. 14. 13 of them were people of color, brown, or indigenous. 13 out of 14. They found statistically that 50%, a 50% higher use of unnecessary force if the person was black or brown. Well, wait wait to hear this one, Anthony. 78% of all traffic stops and we know what happens what could escalate with a traffic stop 78% are of black residents or people in Minneapolis the black population in Minneapolis is only 19% that's right 80% of this car stops yeah. are black people i mean this is undeniably a racist organization and and i and i fault i put a lot of the blame here at not only the people of the city of, of Minneapolis, because they had a they had a vote uh, a year ago to to dismantle the police department and replace it with a agency of public safety, and they rejected that at the polls. They didn't think that it was that bad, and even the mayor was against, who was supportive of going after Chauvin and the rest. After George Floyd died, he was against losing control of his police department, which he had as the mayor, was a, was against the referendum to disband the police department. And now, of course, now that the, the Department of Justice is about to throw the book at them and the Human Rights Commission has thrown the book at them, he said, oh, this is good. This will help us get to the better place. I mean, I that mayor is not doing well in my book.
0: How has body cams and cell phone video changed the, the legal um, right of uh, reply for victims of police brutality. Because obviously yeah. we saw it so clearly with George Floyd. Um, and that was a passerby filming it. And that passerby didn't know really quite what she had done. She'd created an entire movement. Um, mobilizing an entire generation of people, right? I mean, this Th- that is- That was is... the
1: saddest testimony, Anthony, was her yeah. testimony and how yeah. emotionally and psychologically devastated she has been, but she felt she had the obligation and the right as a US citizen and as a human being to yes. turn over that video over much personal sacrifice to herself because of the shame that she felt that she couldn't do more for a dying George Floyd. It was for me the most poignant, Uh, testimony and
0: all the George Floyd... um, And yet she did so much. You know, in hindsight, she's done so much. And we saw it uh, just a few weeks ago with the execution of Patrick Loyola in Grand Rapids, where a white police officer pulls this guy over for a a traffic stop for a a registration that didn't match the vehicle. Patrick gets out, says, what have I done? What have I done? And instead of de-escalating... This police officer screams at him, get back in the car. And of course, it all goes horrifically wrong from there, which results in this police officer sitting on this guy's back, face down, straddling him and executing him in the back of the head. He turned off his body cam video uh, we are now discovering, but there were three other videos that were, you know, or two other videos. Um, One was from the passenger of Patrick Layoya's car, filming what was going on so just to back to this original question what was the landscape like politically uh, uh, legally for victims of police brutality before the advent of portable video
1: yeah thank thank god for port- portable video and right. passerby's video cameras for security people with their cell phones the proliferation of really good cameras and video equipment that's in your pocket and and the requirement Um, of having police officers wear body cams, because now we have tangible, visible evidence that before, frankly, corrupt police were able, because of cooperation with their fellow corrupt police and their and their unwillingness to cross the thin blue line to testify against one of their own because that's just the way it's always been with the police department, you now have these independent corroborating pieces of evidence that the prosecution can use, that the civil lawyer can use against the police or to prove it. And how many times have, even with the advent, this is the remarkable thing, even with Anthony, the advent of the body cam and its mandatory use and video uh, surveillance by, by passerbys, how many police, are not, uh, report not knowing they've been caught on camera, write up their report one way, hoping, I guess, in the back of their mind that some camera didn't pick it up. Then the camera comes out, the citizen posts it to social media or reports it to the police, and now we're off and running. Thank God for that, because the natural instinct of a corrupt uh, corrupt cop that is, that is executing this standard operating procedure that ultimately leads to the death or maiming of a black brown person, his natural instinct is to cover it up. Is is to is to put a weapon in his hand to pull a weapon out of his pocket, put a weapon in his hand to have his fellow police officer vouch for him. That would they be know the what natural doing, instinct, don't they? Of they, course, they know what they're doing.
0: And my fear is that this report, this Minnesota Minneapolis report, is just one town. It's just one district, and yet. If this report was to be done for every police department, what would the result be? How similar would it look? Very. You know, is it because they, <laughs> they often say, oh, 99% of police officers are, are amazing. It's the 1% that is bad. I'm starting to think that that should be reversed. Well, I wouldn't
1: go that far. But I will say that that Minneapolis, I am sure, is not an outlier at all. I think within the bell curve Um, In most metropolitan police departments, you're going to find a level of bias in policing. We saw it here in New York during the Black Lives Matter protests that got used as a cover for unlawlessness uh, and looting by people who were not the Black Lives Matter protesters, but were using it as an excuse to break into the local Gucci store. We saw what the policing was under de Blasio, and even though the department has a fair amount of minority members in it, the techniques that they used, you know, are are now the subject of in, uh, inspector general investigations and other lawsuits about, well, why did you, why did you kettlebell, why did you kettle them, why did you block them from, from the, you know looked like the 1960s on the yeah. on the pe- on the Norman Pettus bridge where they had officers blocking one side officers blocking the other moving towards them on horseback i mean i would have thought i was watching you know um the uh, you know, selma montgomery and Right this well, was it's 20- the, it's the 30 2021 the
0: anniversary of the la riots uh, this yeah. week and and you know again a, a civil a civil rights uh, movement that you could argue now, 30 years later, has actually, aside from body cam video footage, nothing really has changed. And why is it that on the day that Derek Chauvin was having his sentence passed down, why is it that I and my friends and pretty much half the country were thinking, I don't think he's going to get convicted. I think this guy might get off. I mean, and we were I was literally like the moment that I heard that he'd been found guilty. I just was like elated. I mean, why should I be so elated when there was video evidence of him murdering this man? Why do I have such little faith in the justice system that I would think that it's likely that a white police officer would yet again get off?
1: Well, let's 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 let me bookend it. I think his came after Rittenhouse. Uh, Kyle Rittenhouse was 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 exonerated by a jury. So we all were deflated when that jury decided that it was okay for 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 Kyle Rittenhouse to put himself in the situation with a loaded weapon, put himself in a situation where he was going to be chased uh, by protesters and then fired at them. Uh, unarmed men and killed uh, and killed two of them. And then on the heels of that, you have Chauvin. And also, let's be frank: these jury pools in some of these places. Look what just happened in the Gretchen Whitmer, Michigan governor. I mean, I heard the evidence. the The plot against her couldn't have been stronger. They they were you know weaponry. They were plotting. They built models of her cabin. They bought. They bought weapons and um and infrared cameras to try to capture her. And then the jury just believed that they were just a bunch of knuckle nuts who were getting high in a backyard spouting off about COVID policy. I mean, so that should not the Department of Justice should not have lost the Gretchen the Gretchen Whitmer and the signal that that sends. And you should not have worried that Chauvin sitting on somebody's neck for nine minutes where they where they where they a screamed, I can't breathe, I can't breathe, could have led to an exoneration and not a conviction.
0: And it's also the punishment not fitting the crime, isn't it? Because, you know, Derek Chauvin unwittingly used a fake $20 bill to buy cigarettes or something. No, George Patrick Floyd. Lo- George Floyd, sorry. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, Patrick Lyoya, uh, again, a traffic stop for a registration. Um, and, you know, and they got the death p- penalty. They, got the, they effectively got the death penalty with no trial, with no jury, with no judge. All of those roles got taken on by the white police officer in all of these cases. Uh, yeah. Go ahead.
1: No, I was gonna say, I, I'll, give you an, I'll give you a recent personal example that sure. proves
0: the point as two
1: white, white gentlemen of a certain age can, can talk about. Yeah. I, I moved into a new home. I put in a new security system. The, the front door two nights ago blew open and the security alarm went off, but we didn't hear it because we didn't have the, the alarm set right. A police officer, very nervous and his hands shaking, came into our home through the front door at 340 in the morning and started screaming for somebody to come downstairs. I figured out quickly what had happened, that they, the, the, the alarm, had, the silent alarm had gone off. I came down, I had to put on clothes, a uh, you know, robe. I came downstairs in a darkened house to face a police officer shining a camera in my face and a gun and a hand on his gun,
0: yeah.
1: who, who was shaking. I could see, yeah. this, this was the biggest event for him that evening and police officers right. do put their life on the line every day. I was as nervous as he was, but my hand was not shaking. As he's shining the light in my eye and asked me for my identification, fortunately my passport was sitting on top because I was traveling recently and I was able to let him pick up my passport and identify me and still questioned me. I will tell you what went through my mind. This could have easily, if I were black or brown, coming down the staircase with no identification and him not knowing whether I was the burglar or the owner of the home, I could have easily been shot. And I thought that at that moment. And I thought, thank God I'm white because this white cop is not gonna shoot me in my own house under that scenario. But that is not
0: what black and brown people feel every day in their interactions with the police. And we could talk about Breonna Taylor and the no-knock warrant, um, which, you know, again, these situations where police seem inclined to fire their weapon first before they've been able to intellectualize the situation in front of them. Um it's very interesting. There was a a, a piece that uh, in the uh, Star Tribune about um, communities of color were not surprised at the outcome of the report in Minneapolis. They're basically saying we have been screaming this for decades. We we know exactly what's in this report, and yet no one has been listening to us. And yet it's taken this you know significant seventy two page report. To for somebody to listen and take an official line. So just explain about this decree. What is the likelihood of the recommendations of this report actually being applied in the case of this state? And will there be changes to policing as a result of it? I think there, there, I I am sure that there will be changes to policing. I'm not sure
1: that the Human Rights Commission uh, and its powers in finding probable cause um, on its own is going to lead to effect, to affected changes. Two things have to happen I think for that to happen and they're both in the works. One, having now issued the report, they're gonna to have to go try to enforce it under their powers through the, the state court system because they've also found a violation of the, of the uh, Minnesota state constitution. They're now gonna to have to file a civil case and then try to enter into a consent decree with the police department again they already got a couple of days after George Floyd. This same organization ran into court and got the city to agree to a consent decree requiring body cams, uh, changes in their police structure, that they wouldn't use a riot disbursement mechanisms without the police chief being involved and other restrictions that they agreed to at the outset. Now, this organization with the 72 page report, Anthony, is going to have to run in and give some teeth to it with a court system. However, They're also in dialogue, I am sure, with the Department of Justice, which would take precedence over the state and may ask the state to back down for the time being until Merrick Garland's Department of Justice catches up and issues its report, because if it finds, if DRJ has a lot more teeth than Minnesota, if the Department of Justice finds, as I believe they will now with the 72-page report in their hand, that there is a violation, a systemic pattern in practice to violate the 14th, the 1st, and the 4th, Amendment and to racially discriminate in the state of uh, in uh, Minneapolis and the police department, they then can go into federal court and then enter into negotiations to have a consent decree. It could lead to the abolishment of the police department. It could lead to the decapitation of all of the heads of all of the departments. And it could lead even I mean, I'm just saying they could have the power to demand the mayor step down and anybody else in a leadership position. Um, in order to effectuate real change and to improve community policing in that town. Um, and then they're going to move on. And people say, well, what is Merrick Garland's Department of Justice doing? They're doing things like this that Bill Barr and Trump never would have done, which is to go after bad cops and bad police departments um, and and uh, for violations of the U.S.
0: Constitution. Okay, Uh, let's move on. I want to talk about Mickey Mouse. Uh, I mean, Ron DeSantis. (laughs) Sorry. Um, He uh, has been talking on uh, Friday about uh, vowing additional legislative action to dissolve Disney's self-governing district. Um, And let's just give a little bit of background to this, because this is after Disney came out against the Don't Say Gay Bill, which is a phrase that has been coined by critics of his uh, anti-LGBTQ plus bill, which prevents... Um, the kind of teaching of these you know, sexual or gender issues for children in, uh, I think it's up to third grade, isn't it? Um, in the yes. in in that state uh, interestingly a bipartisan majority of u.s voters oppose politicians punishing companies over their stances on social issues this is um, a poll that's just been done a two-day poll completed on thursday this week that 62 percent of americans including 68 percent of democrats and 55 percent of republicans said they were less likely to back a candidate who supports going after companies for their views I mean, it does seem quite an anti-conservative thing to do of Ron DeSantis to want to go after Disney. I, I have put a couple of things together, um, two and two and, and, made, and made five, and that is that all of this is is theatre, political theatre, for the purposes of fundraising. Because, you know, there's the primaries, there's the midterms. This guy's raised like $108 million in the last few months. And partly because he has been on the front pages of all the newspapers, everything he comes out with is controversial, is seems extreme, and yet, whether he believes these things or not, he is basically raking in tens of thousands, in this case millions of dollars, in fundraising for his campaign. Is that, is that what's behind this? I mean, is he prepared to lose Disney over this? Is it about him wow. becoming... President,
1: yeah, you you've hit the nail uh, directly on the head. He has to know that going after what what Floridians call the big mouse, which is Disney, which is the number one employer, um, and it is it is the straw that stirs the drink in Florida, and has since the 1960s when it when Walt Disney literally got up in a plane to look down at Orlando and right. see these fields to to plant his new dream of Walt Walt Disney World. It, 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 Walt Disney, you know, I can't underestimate for the audience how big of an influence politically and economically Walt Disney is in all over the state of Florida and not just in Orlando. For instance, when the state considered 10 years ago to open up casino gambling in Miami, which is a is a threat to the big mouse's monopoly over entertainment dollars, the big mouse roared and said no and effectively blocked all gambling in Miami uh, at that moment. And it it has that power. And no governor has saw fit to go after them, especially to retaliate against the First Amendment rights of of Walt Disney, that they were a little bit late, they were on their back foot when when the Don't Say Gay or the Parental Rights and Education Act, they always give it these great highfalutin Uh, highbrow uh, names, but they don't say gay act. You know, for the first couple of days, Disney stayed silent and its employees were livid, as were other people in the LGBTQ community who often go to Disney on Gay Pride Day and other days that were welcomed by Disney. Finally, they got off their back foot and they said, you know what, we want it repealed, it's wrong. And in direct retaliation for that, as you've outlined it, for the exercise of their First Amendment rights, because companies have First Amendment rights too. DeSantis said, I am not going to allow a major corporation who gets tax dollars and benefits from my state to go against me and have the temerity to go after my act. I'm going to repeal your special district exception since 1967 that allows you to self-govern all of the territory around Orlando at much expense to Disney by the way they provide their own police fire safety right. utilities yeah. and, every, and with 500 employees instead of letting the the uh, Osceola County and Orange County do it we're going to repeal that and because he literally has said at press conferences we're going to repeal it because of your position on first on on uh, don't say gay which is a a viewpoint-based discrimination, which is outlawed by the U.S. Constitution and its First Amendment, even so this it's outside Supreme of Court. his
0: jurisdiction. Basically, he is well, he it- is taking a leap of faith. Because it's going to keep him in the headlines. and He knows he's going gonna... to lose this. Yeah, right. he knows. Just, right.
1: just as you set up the piece. He knows he's going to lose this, but this is red meat to his base, to his donors, to his fundraising. And so he doesn't care if he wins or loses. He's going to do all of these extreme things. He's like the kid that will, do, that will keep testing until he burns his hand on the stove about what he can get away with with his parents. And he knows his base loves this, you know what, And he's gonna keep doing it even if he loses in the courts until the courts say, stop. So for instance, I'm gonna have on my show on Legal AF next week, um, uh, the the lawyer who's leading the first case uh, in Florida, uh, Ronnie Kaplan and her firm against Don't Say Gay in the Northern District of Florida, they filed a case claiming that 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 statute itself is against the US Constitution. And so there's just going to be all of these, all of these law firms in the Department of Justice that are going to be going after him for what they did to Disney. And then I love Disney's position, by the way. Disney didn't come out and said First Amendment rights you're violating. Disney said he tried to hit them where they live in the economics and kick him in the economic, you know yeah. what. And they yeah. said, I don't know, we got two billion dollars worth of bonds that are tied to us having the Reedy Creek improvement district at our disposal. And if you take that away from us, which violates our contract with the state of Florida, what's called a compact with the state of Florida since 1968, well then you're gonna have to, we're gonna be in default under our bonds and you're gonna have to pay the $2 billion back governor and why don't you just allocate that among all the taxpayers in the state of Florida? And then if we're not a government anymore, we're going to look to Orlando and Osceola County and, and uh, Orange County to take over all of these services at much expense to the taxpayer. So how do you like that? So that was their first response from a PR perspective.
0: It wasn't First Amendment, First Amendment. It was money. Interesting. I mean, I have a theory that you know, there's never been a huge amount of research by the likes of uh, DeSantis' people to find out whether or not they are as anti-woke as he is or anti-abortion or anti-LGBTQ plus education or anti-critical race theory as he is. And and my, my concern is that, you know, they're pushing this very far-right agenda. And yet the people of Florida... Yes, of course, there's the MAGA Brigade. They make a lot of noise, and they're the ones that are going to applaud this. And I saw DeSantis on Fox the other day, sitting in some, you know, he was being interviewed. He was like the star, and he was saying, I will not allow Disney to do this, to try and indoctrinate our children in this, you know. And I was like, whoa. And the crowd, of course, they're all a perfectly selected crowd, screaming and applauding, perfect Fox audience. You know, they've created, again, yeah. this political theater. But what if the people that are fundamentally going to vote. What if they are not as extreme as he is? Because, you know, statistically across the country, America is actually a kind of a progressive country. It's it's not as extreme and as far right as some of these Trump and DeSantis uh, characters lead us to believe. So could this backfire for him? Well, having lived in Florida for twenty
1: years and down in Miami and been involved with local politics there, I, I'm I'm I have something to report that I never thought I would say. When Obama won Florida, and primarily because he won the Orlando corridor, and which is primarily Latino, and he won re- reliably Miami Dade County. And all, and, and all the counties of South Florida, Palm Beach County, where Trump Mar-a-Lago is located, Fort Lauderdale, Broward County, and Miami-Dade. You could just, like, check those off as in the Democratic category, and, and they were reliably Democratic. But there has been a major change. I went down and worked the polls this last cycle for, for Biden. Biden barely won Miami-Dade County, primarily because they're going after not only the Cuban-American vote, which has always been... Um, reliably Republican. But new immigrants who have come from Venezuela, Colombia, and other places, which used to be Democrats when they got here, have now been converted both by the the Trump cult and because they have, the, the Republicans have gone after Spanish language radio and have, cre- they, I can't even tell you what they called Biden on Spanish language radio. I, I heard or, about or, this, yeah. Or what they yeah. called Kamala on Spanish language right. radio. Yeah. The, the best I can tell you is that she was his nurse. That was the yes. best I ever heard. Yes. Uh, and then there were songs that were created that are not suitable when they're translated into English. And they have made headway into convincing Miami-Dade County, and if Miami-Dade County goes Republican, That's the canary in the coal mine. The whole state will then go Republican because the Democrats have to win and win big in Palm Beach down to Miami in order to win Florida. So even though we kept losing the governorship from the Democratic standpoint, we used to reliably be competitive or or better with the Democrat. And now Florida is, I used to think it was moving towards blue. It's not even purple anymore for presidential politics right now. It is red. So I'm not sure I would have, five years ago, Anthony, I would have agreed with you that that DeSantis is more right-wing than his than than the state, but he can win on this far extreme of the party in the state of Florida right now, and that's a sad commentary.
0: And and just finally, you know, across the country at the moment, you know, inflation is out of control, um, GDP is down, um, the stock market's having all sorts of interesting fluctuations of its own, but people fundamentally feel poorer. All of these things, and Biden is not really doing much to kind of, you know, to really convince people that he's got a handle on this. All of these aspects, all of these elements are fodder for the right to say, well, none of this happened under Trump. And I am now working on the assumption that Trump will run if he's not prosecuted and Trump will win if he's not prosecuted. Is that the only reason why he's running is because he doesn't want to get prosecuted? Yeah, I've seen that theory that
1: if he's the sitting president, they'll have to abate their prosecutions. I'm not sure that's how that works exactly. Um, And I think some of these prosecutions, whether it's Fawney Willis in Georgia uh, for the interference with the the election there with his phone call to, to the secretary of state and others, Um, New York looks like it's become totally off the rails with Alvin Bragg, unfortunately. And now we're waiting for Merrick Garland through his grand jury that we now have um, information about that exists in District of Columbia, which is moving quickly, but is not going to have an indictment ready in time for the midterms. The midterms, unfortunately, look terrible. Based on the economic analysis of where we are with inflation and job loss, and the first time in a while in ten years that GDP has shrunk, it just got announced under Biden, which is not good yeah. when you put four trillion dollars of government money into an economy and yeah. that leads to it shrinking. That's not. And a he good said thing it was for, for
0: technicalities or technical reasons. Like his his <sighs> response was very wooly over this. Yeah. but this is this he's, he's is st- st- all. This is all going to contribute to Trump's argument, you know, that the war would never happen under him and that, you know, the coronavirus would have been dealt with better under him because he invented the vaccines. I mean, this is my fear is that, you know, really there's a chance that the clock is going to get wound back. And if Trump returns or one of his surrogates, DeSantis or whoever, that all of these civil rights um, progressive movements, including this Minneapolis report, will just be Thrown in into the trash, and yeah. we will have to. The clock will be rewound fifty or sixty years once again.
1: So here's my working theory, which is close to what you said. I don't yeah. think Trump is running in order to win, and I don't think he ultimately runs um, for re-election. But in order to stay um, relevant, in order to stay um, and have an ability to raise money, which he needs desperately, because a lot of sources of money have been cut off to him and his organization because of these investigations um, and, and others and other reasons. I haven't seen a new Trump building or a new Trump license or new Trump hotel at all in the right. last two years. And I live here in Manhattan, uh, but he needs to stay relevant and he needs to he needs to have a job. So he, he runs for office, but he doesn't believe at the age of 80 um, with all of his problems that he could actually win. I mean, Biden just didn't win by a little, he, he won by a lot. He won by 7 million. Now, the problem is Biden, and I hate to say this because I voted for the guy and I like the guy a lot, he is not resonating with the American people as a likable president that they believe and they want to follow. And the whole narrative that's been established by the Republicans, that he's in his he's doddering, that he's not with it, that he's Sleepy Joe, have stuck. And he's not doing a great job with the PR related to job creation and all these other things. And as you said, he's had a number of John McCain moments where he says the, the, the fundamentals of the economy are strong, Disregard inflation, disregard gas prices. Just, dis- I mean, you know, you die a death of a thousand paper cuts. All yeah. of these things that he's asking people to suspend their disbelief about. He needs to have a better story, and he doesn't seem to have the people around him that are able to communicate that. And he's not. And Kamala is not doing a great job either at being his surrogate the way that Biden was for Obama. The biggest problem, I don't know if you caught this, Anthony, the biggest problem in the statistical analysis right now is how much he's shedding young people who voted for him, maybe begrudgingly because they wanted Bernie, but they got on board because they're Democrats. The numbers are horrific right now, 20, 30% down in in the 25 to 30 year old market. You know, if he loses the older people and he loses the younger people, and the independents, he cannot win re-election. Now, he may not run for re-election. It may not be Trump versus Biden. It may be a Democratic surrogate. I don't know if that's Pete Pete Buttigieg or somebody or or Kamala gets her act together in time so that she could really be the presidential candidate or not. It could be that surrogate versus DeSantis. I think it's I think yeah. Trump ends up being the kingmaker. It is because he's an ego an ego and and puts the crown on DeSantis's head, who then runs pledging allegiance to everything that is Trump and you're right now we've got a new uh, a, a new person we're gonna have a seven to seven to two eight to one Supreme Court over the next 20 years and and progressives will never
0: get anything accomplished at the federal level okay thank you very much I, I really enjoyed our chat today and uh, I, I it's great to you know speak to a, a you know somebody who's a professional fundamentally you know we all seek to be professional but to be a qualified professional is <laughs> is a, is a cut above so thank you for your expertise and you. uh, i just want to remind people that the legal af podcast is twice a week and it's uh, an excellent Uh, education in what's been happening, you know, from a legal perspective uh, across American politics uh, each week. So uh, again, thank you very much, Michael Popok. Uh, Don't forget to subscribe to The Weekend Show on YouTube or as an audio podcast, and also the 5-Minute News Daily podcast, which drops every morning. I'm Anthony Davis. Join me next Sunday morning with a brand new special guest and three more factual news stories to discuss on the 5-Minute News Weekend Show With Midas Touch.
1: We often hear about the individuals who took the oath of office to become the chief executive. But what about the other people who play a role in each administration or the events that may not be as well known? But that contribute to the reshaping of the office of the American presidency. On the presidencies of the United States, we explore each administration beyond just the person holding the high-selected office, in order to better understand the history that brought us to the modern-day presidency. I hope you'll join me on this journey through the annals of presidential history. Presidencies can be found anywhere fine podcasts can be found,
0: and as a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. <music>